When I was a freshman, my first year of school, one of the first books that was assigned for reading was not exactly a, a deep, profound theological book. It was just this little book by J.B. Phillips. And I didn't know what the professor was up to when he assigned the little book, but I found out later. And this little book by J.B. Phillips is worth reading, if for no other reason than to correct faulty thinking that we have, kind of in line with what um, Sally was just saying, that sometimes God is blurry to us. In fact, often he's blurry to us. But in this book, the, and you'll, you can tell by the titles, the title of the book is called Your God is Too Small. And then in the book, he references in each chapter ways that we view God. And here are some of the chapter titles. Some view God as the resident policeman. That his highest aspiration is to write citations to you every time you're out of line. The second one is a parental hangover, where we project onto God and onto God the Father um, projections of our experience growing up as a child and what kind of parents we had. Now, that's okay for a small child, but that needs to stop as we, as we age because the Scripture tells us, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and the renewing of your mind as pertains to God and what His nature is like, His character is like, and who it is that we, that we worship and that we trust and that we've given our lives too. So some suffer from a parental hangover. Others view him as the grand old man. You've heard that one. He's kind of the grand, uh, the great, great grandfather in the sky with the big white beard and roly-poly uh, visions of a grandfather. Some view God as the meek and mild. Um, if he were to shake your hand it would feel uh, a bit milk toast, so to speak. You ever had to shake somebody's hand and they give you that limp thing and you almost wonder what that was? Some people think God's like that. He's all detached from the world and can't handle the, the rough and difficult hardships of, of the world and so on. Um, others view him as um, God in the box. They've learned enough theology that they've got it all figured out now, and so they have him all boxed up and in a neat little package that they can understand, having forgotten the attribute of incomprehensibility. One of God's attributes. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts than your thoughts and my ways than your ways, declares the Lord. Some see him as a managing director, kind of the CEO of the universe, um, cold and aloof and in his three-piece suit, up above, raining down on everything and orchestrating everything and managing everything. For some, God is nothing more than a second-hand God. They have faith in a God by the pressure of public opinion or Christians around them 
but they don't have a first-hand knowledge and experience of God gleaned from the Scriptures and responded to in faith and trust. Anyway, he goes on, the pale Galilean, the perennial grievance, the projected image, on and on. And it's just, but it's not a book for really getting enriched in terms of God's nature and character. And so what the professor did was he followed this book with a second assigned book, which was A.W. Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy, which was so stretching and refreshing and exhilarating to read about the nature of God. We all struggle with faulty concepts of God. And in this chapter that we're beginning to study and working our way through in the uh, 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel, and you can turn to it if you're not there already, we started a series last week working our way through Luke chapter 15. And last week we emphasized the fact that in many ways Jesus in this chapter, is justifying his behavior. He is explaining himself to, uh, to those who were there and especially to those who were the religious rulers in Israel. And so when we begin the chapter, verses 1 and 2, we read, Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near, near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man. And right off the bat, even their statement is a kind of disdainful insult. It's kind of like when you say, well, that guy. There's no respect here. There's no knowledge of who he is. There's no understanding at all. They're utterly blind to who the Son of God is. And so their comment is a bit disdainful when they say, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So in response to that, Jesus proceeds to give three stories, three parables. And uh, the first one is the parable of the lost sheep. And we looked at that last week. Uh, this week, we're going to just take a moment and look at the parable of the lost coin. And then the, the, the longer section is the story of the two sons, the lost sons, and they're both, in a sense, lost. And we'll see that as we go through it uh, when we get to that. But in all three stories, there are certain commonalities that tie them all together and it it just um, well I'll give them to you last week I said they were something valuable was lost something valuable was sought searched for something valuable is found and when that valuable object is found there is celebration there is joy Um, before we read the story together, when I was 10 years old, my dad and my uncles made a trip from southern Oregon, where where I grew up. Uh, They made a trip to Idaho to visit my grandmother's grave and to take care of her grave. And I think 
just to be together, the, the, three, the three brothers. Anyway, they would make these periodic trips. And on this particular trip, it was in the summertime just prior to the 4th of July. Well, in, in Idaho back then, real fireworks were, as my dad would call them, real fireworks were still available and they were legal but they were not legal in Oregon. And so firecrackers and Roman candles and bottle rockets and things like that were not, um, they weren't legal in Oregon. So when my dad returned from this trip, he returned with a gift for me, which made me the kid on the block. Because what he gave me was a brick of uh, black cat firecrackers and they, in that brick, there were 10 packages, as you've seen firecrackers, how they're all woven together, 10 individual packages of 100 each. And can you imagine, I was 10 years old, and I was given 1,000 black cat firecrackers. And I instantly became the kid on Glenway, this little road we lived on. But it was given to me by my dad with the stipulation and condition that I was only allowed to light up 100 per year, one pack per year. And so, which was a rough thing for him to do to me, but as you can imagine, but I abided by it. And he told me, he said, now there's gunpowder in these. I'm only 10 years old, mind you. There's gunpowder in these, or there's black powder, and and when you open it up and take that first pack out, you need to wrap it and seal it up really tight in tin foil so that it stays dry. Well, so I did that. And I blew off the firecrackers, and he showed me a trick that uh, later I showed to my own kids uh, where you take a, uh, an empty tin can, like a green bean can, where the bottom's gone out of it, and you punch a hole in the top, and you push a firecracker down in it, and then you set that firecracker in water, in a pan of water, light the firecracker, and when the combustion occurs, when it explodes, it shoots the tin can up into the air. And so that's a lot of fun. And, um, you know, and you can, you can, yeah, yes, yeah. There you go, Adam. Just, if you need more tips, just, just ask me. I've got more, more than Anyway, we had so much fun doing that. But the thing that happened was, I don't know how it happened, but uh, somehow I misplaced or lost the other 900, the brick. And it was lost. And I searched. And I searched more than one time. I searched my bedroom, I searched the closet and the upstairs, under my bed, behind the dresser, everywhere you could think. I scoured my, my bedroom, uh, looked everywhere that I could, and I could not find it. And it was a real sadness for me at the time, because um, Dad, knowing a 10-year-old's human nature, he didn't really believe me that I lost it. I think he assumed that I'd blown them all up or, get, or sold them to my friends or something. Anyway, yeah, that's, that's water under the bridge. Uh, I'm not still resentful, in case you're wondering. <laughs> and then here's what happened. Here's what happened. I went on through junior high, 
through high school, college, marriage, ministry, three children, and I was 42 years old. Went at my mom and dad's for a visit from Washington back to Oregon, and they were doing some house cleaning. And what had happened was there was an old upright piano that was in my room up against a, a wall. And I had searched. I had climbed up on top. I had looked down. I had looked for it. But what had happened was that brick of 900 black cat firecrackers had fallen off and it fell and bounced off the windowsill behind the upright piano, bounced off and fell into the piano, back down underneath that plate and where the strings are and everything. And so after um, 32 years, I recovered my brick of firecrackers. I found it because I was helping mom and dad clean and do some painting and things like that. And there they were after all those years. And, uh, of course, I've had fun with them since. My kids were growing up. I taught them the can trick. We can talk later, Adam. And um, it was just so much fun to find them and to celebrate. And for, but let me tell you, for a moment there in that room by myself, when I had pulled that big upright piano back and looked, and here was now just covered with 30 years of dust and cobwebs and what have you that's down in there. What joy. And I felt like I was 10 years old again. I found my firecrackers. I found them. And I came out and I showed them to dad and showed them to mom. And we just, they just celebrated with me. And something that I had, value, I had once valued, of course, and then over the years had ceased to value. And that is a vast difference between me and God. When God values something, he never ceases to value it. And no matter how far a person goes, away from God, ignoring God, turning from God, living their own self-governed life without God, no matter how much and how much time goes by, the value that he places on the sinner never changes. And in this story, we have a story kind of like my experience. And I'm sure many of you, you've lost your keys, you've lost your cell phone, you've lost your wallet, right? We've all lost things. And what a wonderful thing when it's found, especially when we really value it and need it and want it. But in this story, the second one, Jesus says this in verse 8. Or what woman, if she has lost, excuse me, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? Here he pictures this woman, um, Scholars differ on the way they view this. Uh, there is some traditions regarding the interpretation of this little story based on 
2,000 years ago and the culture and the lifestyle, some pictured this woman as just a, a, a poor woman, a woman who 10 drachma, which a drachma would be um, one day's wage. She would have 10 days wages that she had stored away for a rainy day or for an emergency or something like that. And so it would have been of great value to her. And she discovered somehow that she had misplaced and lost one out of the ten. And now Jesus says she stops everything that she's doing and begins to search. And she searches with great care. She lights a lamp. She sweeps. She re- you can see her in her little... Back then they had a dirt floor, a hard-packed dirt floor. And she would sweep and look and search until she found that coin. And it's a simple story, um, but one that everyone there could easily relate to. Now, some take this and they say, well, in the first place, because shepherds were seen as really lowly, they were sort of the, don't take offense if if you work for Roto-Rooter, but they were sort of the Rotor rooters of the day, they were, they, their job and their work was necessary and needed, but they were not looked upon with much value. Um, it wasn't a prestigious kind of job to have. And so some say Jesus is doing this on purpose to agitate the Pharisees because he's saying to them, put yourself in the shoes of a shepherd. Well, they're Pharisees, they're scribes. Or now... Uh, Pharisees and scribes didn't have a very high view of women. And they saw women as um, certainly second at best and of a lower level of importance and value than man. Um, they were a bit chauvinistic. And um, so he says when, he, when Jesus asked him to, uh, them to put themselves in the woman's position, he's also uh, humbling them forcing them to think in a way they would not want to think. Those are some interpretations. Regarding the coin that she lost, some say that she was just an impoverished woman, probably lived in a small village. Back then, small villages, everybody knew each other in this Jewish community. When something was going on, everybody kind of knew about it. And so it wouldn't be uncommon for this to occur where she had lost something and was searching, searching, and found it, and then calls for a celebration with her female friends. The reason I say that is because the words used for neighbors or friends is, is in the feminine, which indicates that the friends that she called together were her girlfriends in the little village. Now, another interpretation is that these coins would have been her dowry that had been given to her by her father. And uh, sometimes a woman would string her dowry of coins, uh, string them together. Uh, Some of you ladies grew up with a hope chest, and you put items in it that you wanted to have later when you married and so on. Well, this woman would have a dowry. It was mean when she got married, she would have something uh, financially to come into marriage with. That's another idea of why she would value it so much. But... Be that as it may, what we're really saying is is that somehow we need to realize that um, Jesus, first of all, is using a term that everybody knew, drachma, so that just like today, if we had a story that involved a 50-cent piece or a quarter, 
And then 2,000 years from now, if the Lord tarries and people are reading about it, no doubt the currency will have changed and they'll be wondering what that is. And he uses this, and part of the reason this is important, every once in a while we need to just recognize that our Lord was a real man. And he's talking in terms that the people understand. And he uses specifically this term drachma, which was a silver coin. And she lost it. And everyone would know what he's talking about. And what I'm getting at is that, and you know the story, what matters most is not our familiar with, familiarity with the story, but asking ourselves about our own hearts. And are we more in line with the Pharisees or are we more in line with Christ when it comes to the value of people? Because obviously these stories, they all end with this celebration and this joy over one sinner who comes to repentance. So these stories are not about a lost sheep. It's not about the lost sheep. It's about a lost sinner coming back to God. It's not about a lost coin. It's about a lost sinner needing to return to God. And it's not really about two sons and what they all went through. It's more about the sinner finding his way back to God. So that's what these stories are really about. And it's helping us see something of the heart of God. So let's look at it again. Verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? It's kind of a rhetorical question. Of course every woman would in this predicament. Verse 9. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And so she calls for a celebration. And as I said, each of these stories is about something valuable that's lost, something valuable that's sought, something valuable that's found, and something valuable that's celebrated. What does that tell us about the heart of God? Look there at verse 10. And here's the meaning. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In this story, I think in the simplest sense, there's just two, there's a couple main lessons. Why did Jesus stress the joy over sinners returning to God. Why did he stress that? First, I think he stressed it because it encourages sinners. It encourages those who, have, who are estranged from God. It encourages them to know that God's love for the returning sinner is genuine the celebration that occurs, the exuberance that takes place. And as I said last week, I left it in the form of a question. Sometimes we need to tie Scripture with Scripture. So when this passage says there's more joy among the angels of God over one sinner who comes to repentance than over 
uh, 99 that don't need it in the first story. And again in verse 10, he says, In the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. All of that is to say God's love and interest and concern for them is genuine. Secondly, it encourages believers to know that God takes great joy over their salvation as well. Now, in this passage, and this might not be something that you would normally think of, but there are so many different angles and themes on these verses. One of them is this. There is a doctrine, historically, a teaching that's called the impassibility of God. And what that means is, is that God, in reality, is without emotion. And it's even found, hinted at, in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I understand why these theologians went this direction, because they were afraid that people would think of God as being human in emotion, like we are, and given to moods, given to fluctuating emotions, acting upon moods, melancholy, and so on. And, and in order to um, prevent that kind of thinking about God's emotions, they sought to dampen it and actually put a kind of philosophic grid over Scripture. And this is how they reasoned it out. They said this. They said, when the Bible speaks of God's emotion, like joy or grief and so on, when the Bible speaks of God being emotional, it's God speaking to us in terms we can understand as though it's not really true of him. I think that that is a real faulty way to read our Bibles. I would rather say, listen, I understand that God has emotions that are vastly different than mine. As high as the heavens are above the earth, his emotions are different than mine. But I get to share in some of his emotions as he transforms my life. But I will not lay a grid over scripture and deny what it teaches about the emotions of God. As though he were clinical. You know, stethoscope, white suit, clipboard, governing the universe like that. That's not the God of the Bible. And, when we, and we could have done a whole study just on the joy in the nature of God. So let me ask you a question now, and I'll show you a couple of verses. When you think of God the Father, as Sally had mentioned, when you think of Christ, when you think of God the Holy Spirit, that the kingdom of God is not in word only, but in righteousness and joy and in the Holy Spirit. When you think of the nature and character of God, do you think of God's capacity for joy? Think of that for a moment. When we think of who God is, we know that his, his incommunicable attributes like his power, his omnipotence, is not something he can communicate to us in the sense that he possesses power. Because his power is without limit. It's without boundary. There is, no, uh, there is no horizon in the power of God. 
It is infinite, like his own being. And when we think of God the Father's knowledge, he doesn't have bits and pieces of knowledge, and he isn't ever learning to gather more knowledge like you and me. God cannot learn anything in the ultimate sense, because all knowledge is his. So not only can he not learn anything, he has never learned anything. I'm using human language here to express the incomprehensible. God knows, period. He knows all actuals for time and eternity. And amazingly, here's a mind stretcher for you. Our God not only knows all the actuals, but he knows all the possibles and potentials. So if you're going in this direction and you have a decision to make and you're at a Y in the road, God knows exactly what will occur this way or that way. But he also knows which one you're taking. And it's just a very great mystery to me that his ways are so far above our ways. Pastor, what are you getting at in this little lesson? Well, I think that the theologians got uh, a virus at this point of doctrine, the impassibility of God. I think the Greek philosophers affected them more than they realized. And they tried to get stoic and picture God as stoic and unemotional. And so when we think of the joy of God, what, kind, what, what magnitude of joy does he feel? And when Jesus says there's, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God, where do we learn about the angels of God? Well, we learn them in Scripture. And we find that they're innumerable. That there are tens of thousands upon thousands. The old King James uses myriads upon myriads. And so let me ask you this. Is it possible that in glory that the angels have a capacity together in unison to rejoice every time a sinner comes to repentance? And that joy that they're rejoicing in is emanating from God himself. It's not that God walks in and looks, and I'm not trying to be irreverent, but he doesn't walk in and says, hey, what's all the party about, as though he didn't know. Right? And so this surge, infusion of joy that the angels have, Jesus says, over one sinner that comes to repentance and faith in him, it's a joy that's emanating from God himself. Now, that's all theory. All of that is sort of beyond us, isn't it? Until we stop to think about ourselves and our own salvation. So, let's put it in an even simpler question. Do you really think that God's glad to have you? That's simple, isn't it? Is God glad to have you as his child? Wasn't he who before the foundations of the earth prepared this plan that included your salvation? Wasn't he who by his Holy Spirit drew you to a place of conviction and drew you to the need you felt for Christ when you turned to him? Wasn't it him always preceding the repentance that occurs? See? 
It's an incredible thing to read the book of Revelation and see these pictures of heaven and these glorious just oceans of angels. And God says every time a sinner is repentant, there is a celebration. So now let me ask you this. Missiologists, which is the study of missions and of the conversion of the nations, they've told us that for the past nearly 50, 60 years, somewhere around um, 200,000 people come to Jesus Christ for the first time and are converted to Christ every day. Now, there are more, there's more joy in heaven among the angels of God over one sinner that repents. And on the other hand, 200,000 a day coming to Christ on planet Earth. Now, that's not a lot when you think of 7 billion people on the Earth, but still, that's quite a bit of joy. Isn't it? See, I think imagination is an important part of learning God's Word. It's not just words and ink on a page. It needs to come off the page with reality and the recognition that Jesus says, I tell you, and when he prefaces his statement with, but I tell you, he's saying, you can know this for certain. There is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 that need no repentance. And then he repeats it again in verse 10. The angels of God, joy, joy, joy. So if there's 200,000 a day or so approximately, just how much joy is erupting in heaven on a daily basis? This idea of the impassibility of God, I only want to show you two verses because I just want to correct that notion that God somehow is, somehow this, this joy he somehow is not capable of. I want you to look at an Old Testament verse and a New Testament verse, and then we'll be finishing up. And I realize this is really more of a theological talk than a typical sermon. But Zephaniah chapter 3 uh, you were probably reading Zephaniah last night, weren't you? Yeah, isn't that a coincidence? Zephaniah chapter 3 is just an incredible passage of Scripture. Now, of course, it's talking about Israel, and it's talking about a time when Israel in repentance will come back to God after they had disobeyed God and turned their backs on God and had embraced foreign idols and so on. But what I want you to see is the heart of God. The heart of God coming through in verse 17. Zephaniah 3.17. See it with me there? My translation reads this way. The Lord your God is in your midst. A victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. You know, listen to me now. There's a, there's a passage in the book of Job where Job is talking about creation. He's talking about the universe, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, and all that God has created in this vast 
fabric of a universe. And Job says, even this, even all creation is but a whisper from God. Who then can understand the, the power or thunder is the word, the thunder of his shout. If the whole creation and its billions of galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars in them, with all of its color and creativity, working like a fine-tuned clock. All of this was created by God, and that itself is but a whisper of His greatness. Then what must it be when the day comes when God says, I will shout over you with joy? Now, that's even there is kind of abstract. It's like, I can't take that in, Lord, to think you would ever shout over little bitty me with joy. But I take you at your word, and I don't believe in the impassibility of God or the emotionless God. Here's a God of intense, robust, jaw-dropping, heart-stopping emotion over his redeemed people where he will exult over you with joy. The other passage is a little, a little bit more obscure, but I want you to see it. Hebrews chapter 2, and then we'll be done. Hebrews chapter 2 The shouts of God's joy and the singing of Christ's joy. You know, we have many, many pictures in, the, in our scriptures of Christ. Hundreds of titles, metaphors, images of his person. Christ is the center and circumference and theme of the scriptures what God's Son would come and achieve. But one of the things that we've not really thought too much about is what must it be like to hear Jesus sing? Now in Hebrews chapter 1, we're told who He is. He is the brightness of God's glory. He's the express image of His nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of God. He is the adoration, the object of adoration of the whole angelic realm. And the terror and fear of the demonic realm. And yet in this passage, in chapter 2, beginning there at verse 9. But we do see him, speak, speaking of Jesus, who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, he's been crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, don't bypass this. Look carefully at the prepositions used in verse 10. 
For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, converted sinners, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. Back to what Sally had to share with us earlier. All from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Which is an astounding thing for him to say. That Christ himself is not ashamed if you're a Christian and a believer in him, saved by the grace of God, he is not ashamed to associate and be named with you as brethren. The one who himself is the image of the invisible God. Now, what I want you to see is this quote from the Old Testament applied to him. Look at verse 12. To give to what what the writer of Hebrews is doing, he's saying, I just said he's not ashamed to be called to call us brethren. And then he justifies it by the proof of the Old Testament. And look at what he says. Saying, verse 12, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. And the next line is just astounding. In the midst of the congregation. I will sing thy praise. What is this teaching? That there's a day coming when the people of God are gathered before the throne of God, where joy in heaven has been erupting for centuries over every sinner that comes to Christ. And in this great event, somehow, I don't know how, But somehow, Christ himself, our Lord, is going to maybe step down off the throne, take his place in the midst of his brethren, and sing praises to God the Father, identifying himself with us. Is that amazing or what? Can you imagine? Not only the shouts of God exulting over you with joy, but Christ himself in our midst, singing of the praises of God, the Father, and his glory and grace. This is what we're destined to. So, as we finish this message, I want to just ask you a question. Is there any chance that you, have, for whatever reason, a myriad of reasons, you have fallen off the back of the old upright piano and found yourself lodged down in its framework, covered with dust and lost, and you need to be found. God may well be calling you to himself this morning. Do you know Christ? Have you come to Jesus?
the Son of God, for salvation? Have you embraced the gospel message of his death on our behalf for sin, his burial, and his resurrection, and God's mighty elevated position at his Father's right hand, where he still summons, Seek me while I may be found. Call upon me while I am near. Your sins I will abundantly pardon. Do you need Christ today? I used to take for granted that church attenders, all of them were in church, and that meant they were in Christ. They knew him. But that's not necessarily the case. It's possible to be in church, but outside the family of God. If you need him, then just pray with me now as we look to him. Father in heaven, thank you for revealing your heart. We know what we're like and we often get fixated, Lord, on our faults and failings. We often live way too self-conscious and not conscious enough of you. Lord, because we feel that way, we just can find it, it, we find it almost impossible to believe that one so pure, so holy, so beautiful, and so good would rejoice over us with exultant joy, with shouts of rejoicing when we repent and come to Christ. But it's true. Your word says so. We wish we had ears right now, Lord. We wish for just a moment you would just unstop our ears and supernaturally we could hear what's going on in heaven. Over the thousands that come to you for salvation every day on the earth. Oh, how we wish we could hear that celebration. How it would change our hearts and how it would make us see and think differently about sinners coming to Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Give us understanding and help us to have a heart that beats a little bit more like yours. Hmm. Sinners are not our enemies. The lost are not to be an offense to us. We do not want to be in fellowship with the Pharisees. We want to be in fellowship with you. So give us a great loving heart for people. A great and very real concern for people. Change us to be more like you. And remind us that when they reject you, it's not us they're rejecting. Just your messengers, your ambassadors, your witnesses. But Lord, we will keep on witnessing. We will keep on preaching. We will keep on bearing witness and testifying of the salvation that's in Christ by your grace. We must do this because it's your honor. It's your fame. It's your name. It's your achievement and accomplishment that matters. We are not interested in winning verbal battles with people. We are interested in winning souls for Christ.
So give us a heart again of love for the lost. And Lord, if there's someone in our midst today who has never yet turned to you, may they do so right now in their heart. May they recognize that they're a sinner, that they've dishonored you, that they have strayed from you and they are alienated from you, cut off from you, dead spiritually, and they long to come alive to you. May your spirit work that miracle in them today as they turn to Christ and Christ alone for salvation. Thank you, Lord, for these precious moments in your word. And help us to remember that you really are glad to have us. That you're glad that we're your children. It was all your idea. God, thank you that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. In his name we pray. Amen.